Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Last time we reviewed six Unitarian Bible translations covering some basic information about where each came from and their overall strategy for translation. Today, we're going to analyze how they translate three key texts, including Philippians 2.6, John 1.1-3, and John 8.58. Our goal is to measure these translations against what the Greek says, as well as noting significant variations from mainstream translations as well as each other. Here now is episode 355, Unitarian Bible Translations Part 2, with Dr. Jerry Werewell. In the last episode, we compared six different Unitarian Bible versions, Emphatic Diglot, the New European Version, the New World Translation, the One God, the Father, One Man, Messiah Translation, the Kingdom of God Version, and the Revised English Version. In this episode, we're going to look at some specific passages to be able to compare some of the distinctive characteristics of these various Unitarian translations. And we're going to lead off here with Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. We're going to begin with the emphatic diglot. Sean, how does it read? Who, though being in God's form, yet did not meditate a usurpation to be like God. Uh, This is an interesting translation. The two interesting issues in this verse are the word translated form, and then this other phrase, did not meditate a usurpation to be like God. In other words, he didn't attempt to seize something or usurp something in order to be like God. In this case, he sticks very close to the text. Let's look at the next one, the NEV, the New European Version by Duncan Heaster says, who, though being in the mental image of God, did not consider grasping at being equal with God. So, This one is unusual in that it uses the the phrase mental image for the word form. The New World Translation says, who, although he was existing in God's form, gave no consideration to a seizure, namely that he should be equal to God. So that's very literal on form, and uh, it agrees with the sentiment in the second part of the others that we looked at. Then the OGFOMMT of Anthony Buzzard reads, who having the status of God as his unique representative did not consider his position as God's unique agent as something to be used for his own advantage. And here we have two differences. One is that instead of form, we have status. And uh, to be honest, I, I kind of like that because the contrast in the parallel structure in the next verse, is over the form of God over against the form of a slave. And the only distinctive fact about a slave that I think could be in view here is status or authority or something along those lines. Uh, I don't think the shape of a slave in Roman society and in a Roman colony like Philippi was any different than the shape of a regular person, right? So I don't think it is a physical... Uh, word, although the word form usually does specify a physical shape. So I think status is, is actually a really good translation here, but at the same time, the OGFOMMT adds in a whole bunch of extra words where it says, 
who having the status of God as his unique representative. It does not say that in the Greek, as his unique representative. And in the translation, we don't find this in brackets or in italics. There's no indication that these words have been supplied, almost like in an amplified Bible kind of sense, for clarity. So even though I agree with the theology (laughs) of this statement, it concerns me that this extra phrase is added in without the reader being made aware of what's going on. And then in the second half, the OGFOMMT diverges from the New World Translation, the NEV, and the emphatic diaglot by interpreting that phrase, not grasping at equality with God, instead as not using his position for his own advantage. So this assumes that he does have equality and he's not exploiting it, as opposed to he doesn't have equality and he's reaching for it. And uh, as I mentioned in an earlier podcast on this verse, these are both totally legitimate uh, ways of reading this particular word in Greek. It can refer to either reaching out for something you don't have or exploiting something that you do have. And so the OGFOMMT goes in that direction, as does the KGV of Ray Faircloth, which reads, who being in the visible form of God did not consider equal status with God as something to be used for his own benefit. Uh, So once again, the second half of that verse, Jesus has equality with God. In, In this case, he says, did not consider equal status with God as something to be used for his own benefit. So it's he's not taking advantage of his status, and that agrees with the OGFOMMT. And, the, and like I said, there's a lot of versions that do that, a lot of versions that don't do that. And it it's really is an up-in-the-air kind of an issue. As far as the first part of the verse, he says, who being in the visible form of God, I don't really agree with that interpretation because... Once again, it's compared against a slave. So, you know, is the is the slave a visible form of something else? I don't see how this fits with the parallel construction there. And then last of all, the REV, who, though he was in the form of God, considered being equal with God, not something to be grasped. The REV is very conservative here, very much sticking closely to the Greek text. It uses the word form, which is a very non-controversial translation of the word morphe, or morphe, depending on your Greek accent, when it says, considered being equal with God, not something to be grasped, the REV is going with the understanding that the word is referring to something that the person doesn't already have, uh, which is a totally legitimate possibility. So, uh, Jerry, did you want to add anything to this? I think the main issue in this passage is about how to render the word morphe or harpagmas as well. So whether form or is uh, pretty standard definition for that word. I think some of the other versions offered a little bit more interpretation of what form represents or means. Uh, That can be good and bad. It can add clarity because the average English reader may not really understand how to look at the word form, uh, morphe there. And so the uh, translation can sort of uh, offer some uh, insight into that. There's different ways to do that. So, and I think that rather than critiquing, you know, uh, which, you know, the NEV offers one, the OGFOMT offers another one. The KGV offers a different one. We basically just uh, thought it best to kind of uh, stick 
with the, the basic definition and uh, allow the reader to have to understand based on the context, which, Sean, as you pointed out, you know, reading the parallel with the, uh, the form of the slave that's being contrasted to that is a big indicator on how I see Paul using this word here in Philippians 2. Now, harpag mas, the idea of something that is to be grasped or something to be exploited or used for your advantage, there's a big controversy over what harpagmas means, and um, it, it carries both definitions. So we see the translations here are um, making a decision one way or the other, and, and that's what translators have to do. So overall, um, I think uh, this is a really interesting passage to look at because it's one that everybody's kind of interested in how the translation renders it. And I think the next one, as we go to John chapter 1, is also a premier section of scripture of interest, uh, specifically for Unitarian Christians. Uh, John 1, in the emphatic diglot, says, In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. This was in the beginning with God. Through it, everything was done. And without it, not even one thing was done, which has been done. The emphatic diglot, the ED, doesn't actually translate the Greek word logos. It transliterates it right into the text. So in that sense, they're making a decision that we don't have a good word in English to represent logos. And, and this is uh, an honest move, I think, because logos, if anybody's ever kind of done some background study on this Greek word, it has an enormous semantic range and usage. And uh, it's usually glossed with the word word in English, um, but it holds uh, many different other meanings such as uh, reason, uh, plan, purpose, matter. It's a very versatile word. And there's also a huge amount of uh, background cultural usage as well from other writers contemporary with the Bible or with the New Testament. Uh, another thing to note in verse 3 with the emphatic diglot is that it uses a neuter pronoun for the logos. Through it, through the logos, everything was done. And without it, not even one thing was done which has been done. There are identifying here uh, with the neuter pronoun that the logos uh, didn't have uh, some sort of personhood or, or conscious entity. It was, it was something that God used, um, sort of like a, an instrument or a tool. And uh, this is a interpretive move uh, because the logos is actually a masculine noun, which usually has masculine pronouns to govern it, uh, which are required by the grammar of the language. But one thing to keep in mind that maybe uh, is new to some people is that grammatical gender in the Greek language, like other languages, uh, doesn't necessarily dictate natural gender. And so you can have a masculine noun and then have a pronoun to refer to it, and it has to also be masculine. But that doesn't mean that the object has masculinity or um, is a male person. Uh, moving on to the NEV here, uh, John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the word, and then in brackets it says logos. And the word was towards God, and the word was divine. This existed in the beginning with God. All things created came into existence on account of it. And without it, nothing created came into existence. Here, the NEV, the New European Version, is at least offering the word word uh, comes from the Greek logos, and then they put it in brackets in the text. I'm not sure what that's really supposed to, to do for the reader, except for alert them that the Greek word is, is logos there. But we see in the second, ha uh, the second phrase here, which is typically the word was with God, prostantheon, they translate it as the word was towards God. 
So that, that's definitely a, a different nuance of pros there. Pros can mean to, towards, or with. It's a preposition that can, that can, and governs the accusative there and can have any of those meanings. Uh, so uh, the NEV is choosing to uh, translate it towards God rather than with God. And then finally, at the end of verse one, the word was divine. Now, uh, this is interesting because the word theos in the second phrase of verse one, they translate as God, but then theos in the third phrase or third part, third clause of the verse, they translate as divine. So they, they changed the sense of theos there, which there's been a big argument over the anarthrous form of theos, meaning it's without an article, that uh, what sort of a, a sense that word is carrying in the last clause of the verse here. And so the NEV is, is basically uh, identifying divine as the qualitative part of God that the word was. Uh, and I think that we'll see other versions that'll do something kind of like this. Uh, I know that we did something similar to this sort of with the REV, and we'll get to that uh, as the last version. But let's move on to the New World Translation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Verse 2, this one was in the beginning with God. All things came into existence through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into existence. Two uh, things I think are notable here. First, at the end of verse 1, we have the translation of theos as a god. Now, in the Greek, uh, with the article or without the article, it doesn't function the same way in English. See, in English, when we have the article or don't have an article, we are making something uh, definite or indefinite. In Greek, the article doesn't quite function like that. You can have a lack of an article, and it can be a definite reference. But here in the English translation of the NWT, they translate it, the word was a god. Uh, lowercase g. Yeah, lowercase g. Seeing the, the word, which they capitalize, uh, uppercase w for word, uh, they see it as a divine being. Uh, some sort of a god-like, uh, not the god uppercase g, but a lowercase g, so a god-like creature or being. And this one, this, this uh, god... Uh, lowercase g, was in the beginning with the big uppercase g God. And it says all things came into existence through him. And apart from him, not even one thing came into existence. It seems like what the translators are saying is that they see the, uh, the word as a being that actually was an agent or some sort of a companion in creation with the big uppercase g God. And that apart from this lowercase g God, not even one thing came into existence. So there's some connection they're making with a pre-existent uh, conscious being called the Word that was actually taking part in the creation of the heavens and the earth with the uppercase G God. The OGF OMMT reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully expressive of God himself. This was with God in the beginning. Everything came into existence through it, and without it, nothing of what came into being existed. Uh, the, standard, the first two clauses of verse 1 seem pretty standard. Then the third one, we find the word was fully expressive of God himself. Now, this is representing the phrase, the word was God. And rather than uh, saying the word was God in an identity sense of um, equating the word as being God himself, uh, the OGF OMMT says that the word was fully expressive of God himself, meaning that the word was a way that who God was, was demonstrated or shown. Verse 2, this was with God in the beginning. 
everything came into existence through it, and without it, nothing of what came into being existed. Uh, we see in verse 3 that uh, the OGF OMMT also uses neuter pronouns to refer to the word, uh, recognizing it not as a person or a uh, conscious living entity, but as uh, some sort of an inanimate object or we could say attribute of God or uh, some sort of characteristic or thing that in uh, the ancient culture, they spoke of abstract concepts sometimes in terms of things that they did. I think there are aspects of the word that are being personified here as well. But at least the uh, way that we translate it in English with neuter pronouns uh, points out that it's not actually a real living creature or being. Next with the KGV, it says, In the beginning was the Logos hyphen God's self-revelation. This self-revelation was integral to God. And what God was, the self-revelation was. This was integral to God in the beginning. Everything came into existence through it. Not one created thing came into existence without it. So we see here in the first clause of verse 1, the Logos m dash God's self-revelation. That's basically giving a definition. Uh, the KGV is pointing out the Logos is God's self-revelation. So they're, they're making a point that that's not God himself in an ontological or his actual being, uh, but it's actually a revelation, something revealing something about him. And this self-revelation was integral to God. So rather than saying the self-revelation was with God, the KGV uh, takes that and nuances it as something that was integral or essential to God, some that the self-revelation was part of God in some way, related to him in a fundamental fashion. And then at the end, what God was, the self-revelation was. I think this draws out the qualitative nature again of the anarthrous theos, uh, that we see there at the end of verse 1 in the Greek. Then in verse 3, uh, we also see neuter pronouns. So the KGV is identifying the, the word, the logos, which they don't translate it as word in verse 1. They just transliterate the word logos. They're pointing to it as an inanimate object, something that doesn't have conscious self-existence, uh, is not a person. And then finally, uh, the REV uh, reads, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and what God was, the word was. Uh, I think the main thing here is the third clause of verse 1, what God was, the word was. Uh, we tried to bring out this qualitative aspect of the word theos here, the anarthrous theos. Verse 2 says, this word was in the beginning with God. We pretty much just translated that kind of uh, straight according to the Greek text. Now then verse 3, all things came into being through it, and apart from it, nothing came into being that has come into being. We too uh, saw that the, the word, the logos here, is, is some sort of inanimate, abstract kind of concept about God himself, sort of synonymous with the way that wisdom functions or light or, or other facets of who God is. And so we translate it with neuter pronouns in order to convey that it's the, the logos, the word, is not actually a, a thinking, living person or thing, but it's part of God himself. And we got a comment in on the REV translation of John 1-1 from Kerry O'Connor, who writes, This phrase, the phrase, what God was, the word was, seems clumsy English to me, even if it is used in the English translation. The any be in this phrase is also ambiguous to me. So, Jerry, I wonder if you could comment a little bit. He goes on in his comment from there, but on why the REV went with what God was, the word was, for the phrase typically translated 
and the word was God. Yeah, this issue uh, often surrounds something called Cowell's Rule, which talks about a uh, anarthrous predicate nominative, which is the noun theos here, and whether or not it's uh, indefinite, qualitative, or definite. And uh, Wallace, uh, in his book, Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics, he talks about uh, these three different options and sort of the implications of uh, translating or understanding it in the three different ways. And he falls down to say that the most likely candidate for theos here is qualitative because the other two, whether it's indefinite or definite, they both have problems. Now we see the NWT goes with the indefiniteness of theos there and translates it as the word was a god. Now, if it was the word was God, uh, he says that that's problematic because what that's saying is that's equating the word with the father. And that would be uh, something that he says uh, is an incorrect statement and was actually something that was condemned by early church councils as sabellianism. Uh, so he says that the most likely candidate for this final phrase is that theos is being used in a qualitative aspect in order to connote something of the word that is then also shared with God. Now, he says that he thinks it's the essence uh, that is being shared between the two, but that's not said in the, in the text. Uh, and so we think that the best way to show that qualitativeness is to say what God was, the word was. And the scripture doesn't explicitly say what is actually being shared between the two, but something is. There's a qualitative <laughs> communion between the word and God, and something is being shared between the two. Maybe in English, the phrasing is not the most smooth and uh, simple, uh, but I think it's actually quite accurate to the meaning of the Greek. So I think uh, to respond to you, Carrie, is uh, I think that that's maybe probably one of the best ways we could handle it, even if it doesn't have the simplest communicative structure in English to it. We're making a, a decision on exactly how that qualitative connection is being made. And we felt that it was more honest to sort of leave that more ambiguous than to try to be specific about it. Well, I, I appreciate that you did that in the REV because one of the issues that I have criticized in my recent class on Bible translations is the tendency to overly specify, overly translate a phrase so that it excludes other interpretations that are possible. And so I, I think it's good to have translations that allow for as much flexibility as the Greek allows for. This way, it empowers the reader rather than taking that away from the reader. Uh, and I suppose that's why the emphatic diaglot just left the word logos in there, didn't even translate it to word. <laughs> and, you know, we could talk about this verse a lot, or these three verses, or even the whole section a lot. In fact, uh, Jerry and I talked about this for, what, two hours last night? Like two and a half. Two and a half hours. We didn't get to the bottom of it. So there is a lot to say here, and we are trying to be brief, but we want to give you a flavor for how these different Unitarian translations go about it. You know, some of them are leading one way, leading another way. The New World Translation says a God instead of God there. Uh, I think that's a perfectly valid translation, even though it's not a position I personally hold, but it is a legitimate possibility for the Greek. Um, and, and so are so are really all of these as far as uh, Ray Faircloth's translation taking the logos as self-revelation. 
that's an interpretation. I can see how that makes sense. The uh, OGFOMMT, fully expressive of God himself, that's a possibility. But the one translation that I did want to bring out that really struck me while you were going through these, Jerry, is the NEV. And uh, I want to raise a red flag here because I see a real grammatical problem, and I, I, I would like to see if you can confirm or deny my criticism here. The NEV in verse 3, John 1, 3, says, All things created came into existence on account of it. Uh, this in the Greek is a preposition, via. It means different things depending on the case of the word that follows the preposition. And I realize many of you don't study Greek, but in their noun system, they have different cases. And when it comes to prepositions, many prepositions only govern or take one case. Other prepositions take different cases uh, or forms of the word, and depending on what form it's taking, what case it is, it changes the meaning of the preposition. And as far as I understand it, when it says through him or dia of two, what it's saying is through him, not on account of him. Now, the word dia or dia can also mean on account of, but only if it pairs with the accusative case, not the genitive case. Uh, so I don't know if there's like some weird exception here, but I see Duncan Heaster doing this on John 1, 3, and I also see him doing it in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, where his translation has, in these last times spoken to us in the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, on account of whom also he structured the ages. Uh, once again, translating this Greek word dia as on account of whom, even though it pairs with a genitive, and to my knowledge, all other translations, uh, except for maybe the emphatic diaglot, might have dropped the ball here too, has through there as well. So am I on to something here, or what do you think? Well, I have to say that the NEV is at least consistent in the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, where it reads here, for in him were all things created in the heavens and upon the earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things have been created on account of him. That is again, the dial two uh, phrase there that we see in John chapter one. Uh, all things have been created on account of him and for him. So uh, I, I'm glad to at least say that they're uh, consistent on that regard, but, uh, but if in they're my, consistently wrong, yeah, in, in my understanding, thing. the, uh, dia with the genitive is, is predominantly through and, and denotes instrumentality, uh, oftentimes with the accusative, it means on account of now. Yeah, there, there can be possible rare exceptions, but I, I don't think this is one of them. I don't think John one or Colossians one. I, I think that, or Hebrews one, or Hebrews one. I think these are are more that there's something about uh, dia altu or dia altu that is showing that uh, through him. All right. So would you agree that it's an error? It's a translation error. Yeah, I think it should be through him. Yeah. Or through so through it. All right. Well, we have to move along, or else uh, we won't be able to finish in a reasonable manner. And really, uh, that was that was the big one. I think these other ones will be a little faster, but. Again, our goal here is is to see how these different translations handle these interesting verses. And John 8:58 is our next text in the emphatic diaglot we read, Jesus said to them, "Indeed, I assure you, 
before Abraham was born, I am he. The NEV there has, I am of higher status than Abraham ever was. Now, this is very different. The standard evangelical translation, if I could call it that, is going to say, before Abraham was, I am. They're going to make a connection between that I am at the end of that phrase with Exodus 3 or the latter part of Isaiah in order to equate Jesus and God. And so what we see here, the emphatic diaglot is making a move that many of these other Unitarian translations also make, which is supplying a predicate for I am. So I am he. Uh, whereas the NEV totally changes the sense of the word before, taking it rather than in a, in a temporal sense, taking it in a preeminent sense or a priority sense. I am of higher status than Abraham ever was. In other words, I am before Abraham. But I don't... Maybe you could comment on this, Jerry. Uh, I don't see this as, as being a legitimate possibility based on the Greek. Do you? Uh, this is definitely an amplification uh, of the Greek and would definitely be a dynamic equivalence of, you know, to in the ancient culture, if you preceded somebody in birth, uh, you were looked at as their superior or you were looked at as somebody uh, to which they, were, they should give honor and respect. So I think when the NIV is translating, I am of higher status than Abraham ever was, they're trying to express in the, from the culture what it means that to be before Abraham was. Uh, but this is not what the Greek text is saying. It's, it's definitely an interpretation, or we could say an amplification of, of the meaning. Yeah, they're taking the last, last two words there, ego and me, I am, and they're, and they're putting them out front, which is totally possible, right? I am before Abraham was. That's a, that's, that is a possible translation there, right? I am before Abraham was? Yeah, yeah, you can restructure it that way. I'm curious about this word prin here. This is the word translated before. When I look it up in the standard Greek lexicon, it doesn't mention priority as a possibility for what this word means. It just says an adverb of time before, formally, then a marker of a point of time prior to another point of time before. So I know there are other Greek words for before that have the sense of priority or preeminence, but I don't think this word does that. And if it does do that, I would want to see a verse to make that case, you know, either in the New Testament or in the Old Testament or from other Greek literature of the time where this word print is used with regard to status, not regard to time. And so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm real uncomfortable with this way of reading it, your point, Jerry, was that, well, if you were before in time, then in their culture, you would be before in status as well. I don't dispute that. I, I understand that that is, that is where they're coming from. But I think what the NEV is doing here is trying to eliminate the time aspect entirely from the verse. And that, contextually, too, is really what's being discussed. Because Jesus had said in John 8, Oh, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they're like, oh, you're not even 50 years old. How could you have ever seen Abraham? There is this sense of timing that's already in the context. And so for Jesus to use before and not mean temporally, 
I, I think seems like a strained and possibly even a biased reading here. So move, moving on then, uh, then we have the New World Translation says, Before Abraham came into existence, I have been, taking the I am as a perfect tense because they're taking before as a timing word. That's totally possible. I would say the I am he of the emphatic diaglot or the I have been of the New World Translation are both grammatical possibilities. I'm real skeptical of the NEV once again. The OGFOMMT translates it before Abraham ever existed. I am the Messiah. And then the KGV and the REV both translate it before Abraham was born or before Abraham came into existence. I am the one. So when it comes to the KGV and the REV using this phrase, I am the one, to translate ego and me, we can see a very strong case for that just 10 or so verses later in John 9, verse 9, where the blind man says ego and me, and, and many English translations translate that phrase, I am the one, there. So we know that's, that's a possibility. There's no question about that. But I am the Messiah of the OGFOMMT. I think this is, you know, once again, more of a dynamic equivalence, uh, bordering on paraphrase here, where you're bringing in who is the he, who is the one Jesus has in view. And of course, you can make a case based on John 4.24 that in that case, Jesus says, Ego me to the woman at the well, and is clearly a reference to the Messiah. You can, you can make a case that in John's gospel, the purpose, according to chapter 20, verse 31, is that everyone would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so I think you can make that case theologically, but you cannot make that case grammatically. My suggestion would be to find some way to mark the text when you're adding in these clarifiers, like the Amplified Bible did. It used parentheses and brackets and all this, or the REV, the King James. A lot of these uh, Bibles will use italics. Uh, I think that has its own problems, but at least it's some way to see, okay, the translator's adding in a clarification here. This isn't what the original actually said. Uh, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, there are a couple of Bible versions that do uh, notate the text, like the NASB and, and others, like you said, the KJV and, and the REV, we do as well. When we when we supplement words that really aren't in the Greek text, we italicize them. But I want to say that that's not an improper thing to do. Uh, you know, you gave a couple examples, Sean. Um, you know, easy one to go to is just John 9, 9 about the ego a me. And all the modern translations, pretty much, they, they don't have any problem supplying a predicate object to right. ego a me yeah. here. We're talking about the, the blind man who was healed in, in John 9. Uh, in verse 9, it says, some said it is, but others said, no, he just looks like him. He said, I am. And then most verses will say, I am the one, like the Christian Standard Bible or the ESV. Uh, others will say, I am the man, such as the NIV or the NRSV. So supplying a an object in the predicate to ego a me is is a completely legitimate move that all the translations do in these other verses. But when it comes to the passages, for example, in John chapter 8, which would be like verse 24, 28, 29, and 58, uh, they find that, oh, well, when we talk about Jesus and, and he says ego a me, well, he, he, must, he must be referring back to like Exodus chapter 3. And so therefore, we don't want to supply an object because that then ruins uh, our understanding of that correlation. Uh, 
I think that's a theologically motivated decision based upon an a priori position that Jesus Christ was in Exodus 3 in the burning bush. All right, well, we're going to have to pause things right here, Jerry, and we'll come back next week and talk about the rest of these verses. But anyhow, thanks for joining me today, Jerry, and for talking about these important texts as we continue in our survey of these Unitarian Bible translations. Uh, My pleasure. All right, well, I just wanted to read out a couple of quick comments that came in from our last episode, 354, Unitarian Bible Translations Part 1. Anthony Buzzard, the translator of the OGF OMMT, wrote in saying, Thanks for the review, Sean. As you mentioned, the Greek text I used was not Westcott and Hort of 1881, but the Greek New Testament edited by Kurt Alon, Bruce Metzger et al., 1983, third corrected edition. All right, so that would be the third edition of the UBS is uh, probably the the term we would use for that, uh, which I think is probably equivalent to the Nestle Aland 26th edition. So that is a good clarification, certainly a lot better than a text from 1881. Uh, There have been some editions where a revision of the Greek critical text won't change much. But I can tell you, between 1881 and 1983, it did have some significant changes. And uh, it's interesting, I was looking at this just the other day, the 26th edition of the Nestle Elan, uh, which is, uh, I think, roughly equivalent to UBS 3, and the 27th edition of the Nestle Elan actually had no differences at all. The text was exactly the same. So from 1979 to, I think it was maybe 93, the text on... The Nestle Elan 26th and 27th were actually the same. They just up- updated the apparatus, the footnotes. And the difference between the 27th and the 28th, the 28th is now the most recent, I believe it was the year 2012 that it came out, were only about 30-plus little differences, most of which were completely irrelevant as far as translation is concerned because they involved word ordering or spelling. But there were a few that did make significant changes. And from what I could see, hardly any translations have taken those into those changes into account so far. Uh, not just among Unitarian translations, by the way, among any translations. So I think translations tend to be a bit conservative. Uh, but as I shared in my class, we are poised, we are on the precipice for many more changes coming down the pipeline with the NA29, and uh, I I don't know exactly when that's coming out, but it will be, I would guess, within the next five years, and it will likely propose some more significant differences. So we'll see how that goes, but I appreciate Buzzard writing in and uh, giving us that clarification. John Bradley also wrote in. He said, I really enjoyed the episode. I'm looking forward to the next one. I have access to all the mentioned Unitarian translations. Very impressive, Bradley. Uh, Then he says, Comment for Jerry, Joseph Rutherham was consistently using the divine name Yahweh for all occurrences of the Tetragrammaton in his Old Testament translation way back in 1902. This practice was also followed in 1966 by the Jerusalem Bible and the New Jerusalem Bible of 1985. And then he adds a comment for Sean, the, he says, the interlinear Greek-English New World Translation New Testament uses the Westcott and Hort Greek text 
That would be the text from the 1800s. This is still probably the underlying Greek text of the 2013 New World Translation, New Testament edition. Well, Bradley, thanks for pointing that out. I did finally locate in Appendix 3 of the online study version of the New World Translation that they identified which Hebrew text they used. They said they used BHQ, which is actually pretty impressive that they that they spent, quite frankly, that they spent the money <laughs> to get uh, whichever volumes of Biblia Hebraica Quinta were available at the time that they did this translation in 2013. Uh, maybe there weren't too many volumes out, so it didn't cost too much. But uh, And then they used BHS, which is the fourth edition of the Biblia Hebraica series for the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, for the parts that don't have the fifth edition yet. And then when it came to the New Testament, the uh, the appendix gets really vague, and it says that the old version, as Bradley pointed out here, was based on Westcott and Hort, the old outdated 1881 text. But it, the, for the new version, the 2013, it says, quote, some of the findings of this research, referring to the Nestle Aland, were incorporated into this present revision, end quote. So that's a very vague way of saying that they had access to at least the UBS or the Nestle Elan, it's not clear which, but they used it to some degree, and we're not sure what versions they used. That's a pretty uncertain statement by the New World Translation. Probably when they wrote that, they were, th- they were thinking that they were being so transparent and so clear but it, it, didn't, it didn't come across as nearly as clear as I would have liked. You know, I think you just tell us what, you know, you're translating the Bible. We're talking about the New Testament here. You're translating the Greek into English. Just tell us what Greek you're using, just like Anthony Buzzard did. He's like, all right, this is the Greek I'm using. This is the year it came from. This is the edition. All right, cool. Now we know where you're coming from. So that would, that would be an appeal to the New World Translation uh, team is is to get with that, and since this is referring actually to an online study edition more than the print edition, uh, that's something they they could just provide that information immediately. There's no reason why they couldn't do that if they wanted to provide that kind of transparency. What do you think, though? I wonder. Uh, do you use any of these translations? John Bradley said he's got them all. Uh, do you have them all? Which ones do you do you like and do you use? Which ones uh, do you find flaws with? Uh, that's really helpful to point out specific verses where there are problems. Uh, that's partly what we're looking at doing here, although we're not seeking to be overly critical, but that is also part of what is important is to see where there are flaws, uh, not only so that readers can be aware, but also so that the translators can improve. Um, most of these editions, obviously not the emphatic diaglot, but these other editions are ongoing, are, are poised to release new editions, new revisions in the future. Uh, so your feedback may may find find its way to a translation team and might might do some good. Uh, so if you are interested in that, come on over to restitudio.org and leave your comment on episode 355, Unitarian Bible Translations Part 2. Uh, also, if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that on the site as well. Well, that's it for today. I'll catch you next week. And in the meanwhile, remember, the truth has nothing to fear. <laughs>